I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about the 2020 presidential and congressional elections, we have with us Bruce Melman, the founder of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas, a bipartisan firm that studies the implications of the policy landscape. Bruce Melman, it is amazing to have you on the truth of the matter. And we want to get to the truth of the matter about what is going on in our electoral politics in the 2020 election. We want to talk about some of the trends you're seeing and how this thing is going to shake out. You've got your finger on the pulse. So President Trump and the first lady have tested positive for COVID. How does that change your analysis? I have to ask you right away. Well, what a year this week has been. Yeah, right. You start on Monday, we were all reeling from that New York Times tax dump. Yep. Then we had the presidential debates, unlike any presidential debates most of us have experienced previously. And, you know, that was Tuesday night. And then Thursday night, you have Hope Hicks followed by the president and first lady. The honest answer, Andrew, is nobody truly knows. These are uncharted waters and uh, very different politics than we've ever experienced. We entered the week where Joe Biden was leading on all of the fundamentals we thought we understood, whether it's right track, wrong track, or approval, disapproval. The head-to-head polls consistently had the former vice president ahead outside the margin of error. But we all also knew that both he and President Trump uh, have been known to have unscripted moments. Uh, We knew that the debates could lead either to under or overplay their hands and potentially change some of the trajectories. We're in a world where October surprises start in the middle of September with with the passing of the great Justice Ginsburg this year. And similarly, last year, we had a host of these. So one is loathe to predict because you're never right. We thought the passing of RBG was the October surprise. Now it's all respect to RBG. That's a distant memory. Well, I'm not sure if I'd say it's a distant memory on a lot of reasons, not least of which because Amy Comey Barrett, ACB, is uh, a nominee who may well have a vote for confirmation the week before an election. And given the degree of hyper-partisanship that we've seen for decades in Supreme Court nominations, at least going back to Judge Bork, the idea that on election eve, a straight-line party vote's going to replace a liberal legend with a fairly conservative young Republican There's no memory to that. That's going to be maybe the freshest memory for voters if they vote in person when they vote. Now, forgetting about Judge Barrett's credentials, she's certainly qualified to sit on the bench. You said it's going to go down a strict party line vote. This is a fraught decision for Democrats. How do you think they're going to treat her during these hearings? And, you know, especially given that the American people in polls have said they don't want the judge named by the current president. They want the judge named by whoever's elected president in this election. 
Well, if you want to know any reason why Americans hate Washington, think about both parties here. Yeah. In the case of the Democrats, they were outraged that President Obama's very, very well-qualified nominee, Merrick Garland, was denied a hearing nine months before an election. Right. They're also outraged that President Trump's qualified nominee is getting a hearing two months before an election. So I guess the outrage point is somewhere between nine and two months. That kind of pales, though, in comparison to the Republicans, who with great sanctimony in 2016 were saying, well, you should never impose a nominee when there's an election coming. It's the, you know, that would frustrate the democratic process. And that was with nine months. And with two months, we're just doing our job. There was an election, the last election. You know, it's both sides give people a reason to despise politics and to despise Washington, you know, and, and you can just decide hypocrisy, sanctimony. It's, you know, it's got it all. I suppose the good news is that the point you made, and Noah Feldman, who writes in, in Bloomberg and was a clerk on the Supreme Court, he is not a Republican, but he was a clerk with Amy Coney Barrett. And he said, she's A plus. She's a really smart, talented, uh, high integrity person. I suspect the Democratic senators will treat her with the respect and appeals judge deserves. I don't think they'll be taking cheap shots. I think they get the fact that the entire world and the country is watching and that if they overplay their hands, if they come off, you know, either uh, condescending in a way that perhaps suggests because she's a woman or based on her religion or anything else, that would undermine them. And I suspect, you know, Democratic senators and Republican senators, they're not fools. I think everybody's going to be on pretty good behavior. I think it's going to be a pretty intellectual debate about abortion, about the Affordable Care Act, you know, and about systemic racism. That's where I suspect we're going to have actually a necessary conversation. Now, do you see the Justice Barrett situation playing out in any Senate races? I think it's going to have an impact in a bunch of Senate races. You know, you start with, say, North Carolina, where the Democratic candidate has run a really good race. This is Cal Cunningham. Yeah. And, and Cunningham just reported raising, I think it was $10 trillion, some crazy number. <laughs> but North Carolina has, if you rank the states by percentage of evangelical voters, it's number eight. You know, as a rule, evangelical voters, if they're at the polls, are more likely to vote for the Republican candidate than the Democratic candidate. And I think there may also be a little bit, as a result of this, help to Senator Ernst in Iowa, to Senator Daines in Montana. All three of those are, are toss-up races, according to the experts like Charlie Cook. Then you have actually two great senators defending in the states of Colorado and, and Maine, um, you know, senators who are really well-liked, but they're blue states and they're tough blue states. When I take a look, what was interesting to me was looking at the exit polls from 2016 to 2018. And so in 2016, the seat was open because McConnell just refused to have the hearings on Garland. And in that election, 21% of the voters said it was the single most important issue. And of that 21%, it broke 56% of those folks voted for Trump. So in 2016, having left it open, it favored the Republicans. In 2018, where they jammed through Judge Kavanaugh, 48% of voters said it was an extremely important issue. And of that 48%, they skewed far more voting Democrat than voting Republican in the midterms. Now, I'm totally apples to oranging, of course. You know, one was much closer to the election. The, the Judge Kavanaugh hearings had a whole lot of other things going on that weren't at all present in the non-hearings for Merrick Garland. A midterm is much more of a referendum. And so I'm a little bit loath, but it's probably why Tim Alberta of Politico wrote, I thought, a pretty interesting piece suggesting he wonders if the president and Republicans aren't more advantaged not having the vote before the election 
so that it's something people are voting on instead of having it before the election, in which case the Republican voters are satisfied. They got what they wanted, and the Democratic voters are outraged and looking for revenge. That's a great point. Let me ask you this. The polls are not looking good for President Trump. The publicly available polls that we are all looking at, if you go to 538 or you go to Real Clear and you look at the aggregates of these polls, 538's got Biden at 80 percent chance winning. And that's looking at the state by state polls. That's not a national poll. It's got him taking about 331 electoral votes. That's pretty much a landslide by any measure. If you're the president and you're the Republicans, what are you thinking right now? Is this a desperate situation for them? So by all traditional measures and metrics, the fundamentals, yeah, it feels desperate, but so did 2016. And so I think the first thing they're thinking, like any team that has ever come from behind to win, I mean, my mind goes to the Nationals last season, who had a horrible start to the season, and then ultimately won the World Series is just this team that just never quit, somehow just kept manufacturing comebacks game after game. So I presume there is a little bit, in, certainly in Trump land, of hoping and believing that they can you know, do another miracle. And they start just saying, we don't trust any of the polls, they're shy Trump voters. You got to be careful because as a rule, you're more likely to win a game when you're way ahead. You know, I think uh, you don't have too many teams behind in the bottom of the eighth saying we got them right where we want them. Usually it's the other way around. Uh, The Trump folks that I've spoken to, I mean, first they say, look, the number one issue is the economy and Trump continues to lead head to head who you think would do a better job. Number two, there is an enthusiasm gap. Trump voters are eager to vote for Trump. Biden voters are much more eager to vote against Trump than they are to vote for Biden. Yeah, but isn't that enough? Isn't there a groundswell against Trump? Yes, absolutely there is. And that's why when you look at the fundamentals, you know, everything we think we know about a lifetime of politics suggests the president's going to lose this thing. Um, It's why something like the debate was an important moment to try to change the trajectory of the race. But it doesn't feel like he won over anybody new given his approach to the debate. So it seems to me something needs to intervene and change the dynamic, perhaps the president and first lady catching it. You saw with Boris Johnson and some other world leaders, there seemed to be a, a kind of a sympathy pop in, uh, in public sentiment. At the same time, public sentiment feels in cement right now. I mean, people have formed an overwhelmingly strong opinion. They love him or they hate him. And it's kind of hard to see what's going to change that. Do you think that Trump damaged himself irreparably during the debate? This is the thing. If you watch Fox News, Trump did a great job during the debate. If you watch CNN or MSNBC, it was a disaster. So if you're looking at this, it kind of depends where you sit and what you watch. Without a doubt, the news in the Walter Cronkite era informed us these days just affirms what we've already believed. Although I would note moderator Chris Wallace is a Fox News staple. In fact, he has their Sunday show. He does not think that the president was successful. For me, I think the challenge was that if the president's goal was to reinforce what his, you know, that his fans like that he's aggressive and think that the former vice president's weak and that his opponents think that he's a bully, he succeeded. But you and I are looking at the polls saying, well, it wasn't his mission to change the polls. There weren't a lot of undecided folks, and none of the polling, the flash polling or other things that I've seen since then suggest to me that the maybe, you know, the, the people on the fence, the, you know, often it's, it's portrayed as white women in suburban areas. 
you know, as a rule, a bully who continues to interrupt somebody else, that's not the way you win that demographic. And I don't believe, you know, he thinks he scored points on things such as law and order. But I think at least what I've read and to my observation, his commentary on the Proud Boys cost him more than he might have gained for that matter. You know, again, given Vice President Biden describes himself as a gaffe machine. If that's what you're up against, you might want to let that guy finish a sentence because he's more likely to make a mistake if you let (laughs) him get a word in edgewise. And if you keep cutting him off, he doesn't have time to make a mistake. And so I think in some ways that helped Vice President Biden. So kind of an unforced error. Again, I have not been able to fathom uh, so many things that the president has done over the last four years. Some have worked out for him and I assumed they wouldn't. Others, I was pretty confident were disasters and were disasters. So, you know, as with Charlottesville, as with Helsinki, I just don't see how that was a winning debate. But I've been proven wrong before. And the thing about President Trump is he's certainly an adroit study of the media and of popular opinion and of the way messages are perceived. So what's the silver lining in this if you can see anything for him? Because he must see something that we don't by looking at these polls. If there's anything at all, what do you see? Well, so I think he gets one thing right, and he's had it right for four years, which is the overall broad zeitgeist, for sure in the United States, but elsewhere as well. And I think that that at its broadest, people are frustrating with Washington. And if you look at the measures by Gallup and others of trust in institutions, the institutions, parties, and politicians, and for that matter, policies of the 20th century do not make people feel protected against the realities of the 21st century. It's why if you look at the 60s and the 70s, there were 10 federal elections, and of those 10, three saw the party in control of the House, the Senate, or the White House change hands. If you then look at the 80s and 90s, four of 10. If you take a look in the 2000s and 2010s, eight of 10 elections have been change elections. And only in 2016 did Donald Trump arrive. He's much more of a symptom than a cause. And one thing I went back, as you know, I'm a data nerd and I put it in all of those analyses that I put out. But if you look at the 10 presidential elections from 1936 through 1972, in nine of those 10, American voters chose the candidate with more years of Washington experience because If I was picking the CEO, I'd want somebody who's been a CEO, somebody who understands the business. But then you have Vietnam and then you have Watergate. From 1976 through 2016, there were 11 presidential elections. In those 11, the candidate with more years in Washington lost nine of 11 times. That's Joe Biden brings 44 years of Washington experience. Donald Trump brings four. He's just banking on this idea that he's still the outsider and the change candidate. It's unproven as to whether a sitting president can be the outsider and be the change candidate. He's certainly outside Washington's norms and Washington's establishment, however, and Joe Biden is within them. And I think whether it's strategic or whether it's kind of just instinctual, he thinks ultimately voters are going to say, I want the wrecking ball. And let's face it, this is somebody who reads the tea leaves maybe better than anybody who's ever occupied the Oval Office. You know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I think Bill Clinton was a pretty good tea leaf reader. Yep. I think in a lot of ways, Ronald Reagan was able to really understand how to connect with people that a lot of other people didn't get. I'm not sure I would say that, I mean, the, you know, the long running debate with respect to the president, you know, crazy or crazy like a fox. I, I think his thing, what he got, he really gets the level that people feel unprotected 
in the 21st century and therefore want something different. They want somebody to blow it up. And, you know, he's the guy to blow it up. That's what he ran as. The challenge now is it's, you know, four more years does not equal we need to blow it up. And, and you know, he's long been the guy running against so many institutions, even as he's in charge of the institutions. And that's made for a really rocky four years. You know, what we don't know is whether that sort of thing computes in voters' minds, and especially when a huge number of voters are going to grade him on, how did you handle the biggest crisis that a president has faced in a really long time? Who are the key demographics out there right now for Biden, for Trump? Who do they absolutely need to get to win this? So I think in the case of Donald Trump, he needs white voters without a college degree to not only show up at the same percentages that he got against Hillary Clinton, but frankly, to show up in greater numbers. That's asking a lot because Joe Biden is, you know, Scranton Joe Biden has an appeal to a lot of those folks. Joe Biden's negative. He's at 45% unfavorable. Hillary was at 54% unfavorable. And they've not been able to dent or to raise Joe Biden's unfavorable. People like the guy. You know, you may or may not have, people have opinions about his policies. People have an opinion about his age, but people tend to like the guy. He remains net favorable. So first, Trump needs to somehow expand the turnout of his base and amp the intensity, and that's a tough putt. Vice President Biden first needs to have a better turnout among uh, non-white voters than Hillary Clinton had. He needs them to show in greater numbers as well as younger voters, and he needs them to show the kind of 2012 level of fidelity to the Democratic Party. I think some of the decision of choosing Senator Harris uh, on the ticket was to try to help lock down the constituency that was so essential to his getting the nomination. What do you think about the all-important suburban voter? We keep hearing about the suburban voter, and a lot of President Trump's strategy you know, has been to talk about rule of law in the suburbs. Where do you think that's going to shake out? You know, so as we saw, uh, so many American elections are won or lost in the suburbs. In the midterms of 2018, the Democrats recaptured the House very much on the backs of suburban voters who overwhelmingly expressed frustration with the uh, disruption that they felt was brought by the administration. The question of racial justice is a question very much that has big impact in the suburbs. And it kind of depends on uh, what you see on TV and what you interpret from what you see. I, I, in in the last analysis, tried to portray it as a Rorschach inkblot test. Because if what you think you see is, you'd say, urban riots, then you want a candidate you think stronger on law and order. And on the the last NBC polling, uh, Trump was up one point over Biden, who'd better on law and order. If you see the same scenario and you say that's because there's systemic racism, that's because George Floyd got murdered and there's not been justice for so many folks like that, then you see racism and you vote for Biden by more than 20 points. It feels like as these things have happened, you know, when you saw just you watch those uh, eight plus minutes of the murder of George Floyd, there's no way to look at that and not conclude something's wrong. When that's what people are seeing, it's overwhelmingly uh, folks who are going to vote for the candidate they think better suited to bring racial reconciliation in the country. When you see interviews with store owners whose businesses uh, that, you know, they poured their sweat into were burned out by what you were told were peaceful riots, but obviously, you know, not peaceful as far as their business was concerned, then voters are more inclined to feel like we need somebody who can, you know, who can keep people of all races safe. Uh, And so in some ways, Andrew, it becomes a question of what do the next 30 days hold? 
you know, you have another thing like the Lafayette Park stunt, and that really hurts the president, you know, but you have another thing like some that we saw in Portland, and, and that hurts Vice President Biden's campaign. What do you think the number one issue is for voters in this election? I don't think there is a single number one for all voters. I think it's going to come down to maybe three kind of voters. You've got pandemic voters, people who are saying either who's better suited to help the nation deal with this or how do I think the administration dealt with this? Uh, And they have overwhelmingly uh, skewed towards Biden. Then you have economy voters who will say not what's the state of the economy so much as which of these candidates do I believe has better policies, tax policies, regulatory policies, jobs and infrastructure policies that are, are, I believe, better suited to help the economy grow out of the hole that we've been in. Head-to-head polling to date has given uh, a majority of those or a plurality of those voters to President Trump. I think the last set of voters are which of these do you think is the better leader for the country, where we are today and where we need to go? And that's where the culture wars are at their nastiest. You have those who vote for President Trump because they say the core problem is too much political correctness. And those who vote for Joe Biden because they say the core problem is too much political division and reality TV amplified by social media ugliness. And a lot of the election may come down to, you know, which of those three lanes has the most people in it. Some of my colleagues think that the number one national security problem right now in our country is us, that our polarization is so extreme. Do you think the country is as divided as the polls are saying? Do you think the country has a possibility of healing? Or is our media so polarized? Are our politics so polarized and tribal? What do we have to look forward to here? Well, first, you've got some really smart colleagues, in, especially in the area of national security. And I don't disagree at all with the sentiment that one of the greatest perils for America in the world right now is that we're not united. I take some comfort as somebody who reads a lot of history in the fact that we've had lots of periods of division, whether you look at, you know, 1960s and 70s, you know, whether you look at the fight before we entered World War II, uh, whether you look at America in the Gilded Age, which, as I think about history, our period of time now is most equivalent to then, where you have radical new technologies upending how we work, live, play, and learn. You know, back then it were things like flight and electricity and automobiles as opposed to the uh, the fourth industrial revolution today. We had historic levels of immigration back then, which caused a lot of the culture wars then that we're seeing the exact same thing now today. We have historic levels of income inequality back then, seeing a lot of the same things today. You had extraordinary division in our politics, um, red states and blue states, then as you do now. And I take comfort from the fact that through that period, change came. To deal with the perceived monopolists, what were seen as the Bezos of their day, they invented antitrust law. There was worker safety law and food safety law. To deal with income inequality, they amended the Constitution for a progressive income tax. There was direct election of senators and giving women the constitutional right to vote. Both of those were constitutional amendments. There was the high school movement, adding ninth through 12th grade for all American citizens, paid for by the taxpayers, and imparting the skills that gave us the best workforce of the 20th century. I feel like our system is, is as Churchill uh, pointed out, we, uh, we always do the right thing after trying everything else. We're in a period that is very upsetting and very frustrating, and it just feels bad 
a lot of that is the nature of the media business amplified by social media. But America comes back. America finds ways to fix things. You know, new majorities come together and make the reforms that are needed. And I do think the bad feeling and the populism is that mismatch between the policies and institutions of the 20th century and the realities of the 21st century. And I think we're in for the next decade for another period of reform like we saw after the Gilded Age, where we're going to have to modernize a lot of these institutions and a lot of these policies to expand opportunity and to repair and modernize safety nets. I think we can get that right. Bruce Melvin, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about issues that are very, very hard to process. I think you've given us some real insight as to how to think about them. Thanks again. It's an honor to have been on. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 